Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is a, is a familiar face, a familiar voice, Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hey, Dimitri, just uh, getting set for a free agency like like everybody else, I think. Have you gotten any sleep since the last time we had you on last week? I have. You know, it gets it gets a little bit easier with each <laughs> passing day. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm eager to do this and and feeling um, on a curve, relatively rested. That's all. That's all <laughs> we can ask for. Um, so we're gonna get to uh, we've got a fun little free agency preview planned later in the show, but I thought a good place for us to start this discussion would be to look at the Edmonton Oilers a little bit because I think that they're at a really interesting crossroads here as a franchise this summer and they've obviously been making a bunch of noise over the past week or so with various moves they made and money they've been spending and you know the McDavid deal is on the one hand it's like the most like stone cold uh, lock no-brainer decision possible where it's like whatever this guy wants he can have considering he's a 20 year old reigning art ross and a hard trophy winner and is arguably the best player in the world already and figures to somehow get even better than he was last season which is a scary proposition for everyone else but at the same time for the oilers it does present them with a unique set of circumstances that they're gonna have to account for and i'm just sort of i don't know like what do you think about the deal he signed and the position they're in kind of this summer and looking ahead to, to next year and beyond? Well, for the deal he signed, um, I, I always go back to the chart and we've also, we've probably everybody listening has seen this chart of expected value of draft picks. Mm. And, you know, the line is really high at number one, drop sharp to number two, but still really high drop sharp to number three, but still really high. And, and those sharp drops continue all the way. And then it, it settles into almost a flat line through the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds, and so on. And and what that shows us is that talent distribution, it's not a linear process. You know, you don't take a small step down from number one to number two, a small step from number two to number three. The better a player is, um, the rarer he is, and guys at the far, far end of that, that curve are incredibly hard to find. And there's two of them in the NHL, and frankly, you pay them 
anything and they're probably going to be underpaid. If they paid um, Connor McDavid $15 million, I would bet you he does more to help them win than just about anything else they could do with that $15 million. But you're right, it does create a difficult situation. And I think the way to navigate it is has been exemplified by um, Pittsburgh and, and by, uh, to a lesser extent, Chicago in that you fill in, you, you do have to bring in some cheap talent to pop them on the wings. Maybe it's uh, you know a bargain bin free agent. Maybe it's a young player coming up. But you have to find a couple of guys for under two million bucks who can who can play roles uh, with a player like that and just be and just be competent, complementary players. And if you can do that, then you can keep the team intact, and it's it's not that onerous a, a problem. Yeah, I think for the Oilers here also another another win is the fact that they got him for the eight years and not you know a, a shorter term. I, I like that from their perspective. But like here's here's the thing, and you and you just alluded to this. It's I I believe that this type of contract isn't necessarily you know all of a instantly just a roadblock that's going to get in your way of of uh, becoming a Stanley Cup champion as a team. But you do really need to optimize how you're utilizing the remaining cap space around him, and you can't afford any of these poison pill deals. And I think that you know people were writing this at the time, um, but right now it's really going to start bearing out and 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 showing uh, the problem that it is. And it's they should have seen this coming right like if you have any foresight in planning out what the next handful of years are going to look for you they should have seen the fact that you know dry saddle and mcdavid are coming up and they're going to have to uh, dramatically increase how much they're paying them and all of a sudden like a, a luchich contract for example just becomes so much tougher to deal with and and i don't know maybe they just weren't looking that far ahead maybe they were at last summer they were thinking listen like we we would just take being competent at this point based on where this franchise has been so just getting to there is all of a sudden a big win for us and we'll deal with the consequences later but now they're gonna all of a sudden have to start dealing with those consequences i don't know that they weren't looking ahead i i just think that they thought milan lucic was a much better player than he ended up being for them in year one um and 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 in fairness to them like lucic had a historically bad year for him at even strength like he made up for it to some degree by being a power play guy which which doesn't necessarily move the ball for your team but makes your players individual point totals look a lot better i I think where they really um made a mistake with lucic was in doing something that a bunch of teams did which was um loading up signing bonuses now as as most of your listeners are are gonna know you can't buy out sign well you can buy out signing bonuses but you don't save any money you still have to pay them 100 percent. so it's it's not worth doing and that's what happened with toronto with David Clarkson because he had all these signing bonuses down the line. They couldn't buy him out when, you know, he cratered in year one. So if you look at New York with Andrew Ladd or, or Buffalo with Kyle Poso or Vancouver with Louis Erickson, any of these guys, you cannot buy them out or it's, it's, it's almost cost prohibitive to buy them out. The same is true of Lucic. So they didn't leave themselves with any wiggle room at all in the event that, you know, Lucic faded as he, he entered his thirties, which is something that a lot of players do. And and that could cost them. I, I I just think you know it's it's too early to write Lucic off entirely, but if if, that, if his first year continues, then it's it's going to be a very bad situation, Fred. Yeah. Well, okay. So if you're them, um, you know there, there's two ways you can kind of approach this coming season. There's obviously the school of thought of you still have McDavid for that one more cheap year, and you really need to go for it and try and see what you can do with with that money and. If that's the case, then swapping Eberly for Strom is kind of a—it's it, tough to reconcile. But then you could also make the argument of, 
you so you you can kind of see this coming and what we just talked about with the foresight you want to get ahead of it and try and plan for those differences so you're not scrambling next summer um what like what what do you think about that dilemma for them in terms of how you'd approach it I found that a little bit frustrating covering them, actually, because um, Peter Shirelli, the course he's outlined publicly, and so far the course he's followed in his moves, has been one of incremental growth. It's a, it's a very traditional, very old school um, GM approach. You know, we've got these young guys, there's no need to rush, we've got lots of time. And and I would argue it's one that's a little bit outdated in a salary cap landscape. Like, I, I don't think that approach works really well um, in, a, in a salary cap landscape. Like Lucic, in terms of what he does to help you win, is infinitely, well, not infinitely, but lots more valuable at four million bucks a year than he will be at, at, at 12 or 13. Mm. And uh, to me, I, I think this was an offseason where there was a need for some urgency, where they could have, and, and, and you know, you're right about when you think about Strom and Eberle, like there's no reason to make that, you, you can defer that deal a year. And uh, I think it was Cam Thompson, who's um, some people don't remember from the Irreverent Oil Fans blog, which was the pioneering analytics blog, um, pointed out that one of the things Chicago's done really well is they haven't done preemptive strikes to solve their salary cap situation. They've kept the best team together that they can, and then when they've gotten into trouble, they've been able to move, move guys out. And I, I think there's a very strong case that Edmonton should have done that this year, that they shouldn't have been planning this you know, really slow build, but... Uh, that's what they've done. Well, I think there is this um, idea that's been floated around about how, you know, they have a lot of sort of not necessarily uncertainty, but they have a lot of moving pieces where you're not sure how they're going to develop or what they're going to look like in bigger roles, you know, in terms of maybe on the back end with Darnell Nurse and Matt Benning or or this and that. And, and so there's this idea that they're going to enter the season with this team and they're going to see how it goes and then as the as the year progresses and especially towards the trade deadline they could be one of the more sort of noteworthy teams to keep an eye on because that urgency could come into play and they could all of a sudden be in the market for rentals but obviously you know we see sometimes how how it works in terms of a uh, supply and demand of the trade deadline and you don't want to be the sucker that's paying exorbitant prices so i don't know it's it's i don't think there's necessarily any right answer but it's going to be really intriguing to see as the year goes along if some of these guys don't pan out or, or play the way that they were hoping they'd progress whether all of a sudden they do start feeling that urgency that they haven't really shown to this point well and it's there's a couple of things wrong with that approach and one of them as you highlighted is is that guys cost a lot more at the trade deadline than they do in the summer mm -hmm. um the other thing that i would really highlight as being a problem with that approach is is andre sakura like that guy was an incredible incredibly important part of their blue line last year he, he did a lot of everything um he made Chris Russell look like a, a $4 million defenseman, uh, or he, he helped Chris Russell look like a $4 million defenseman anyway. Um, and he's going to be gone for probably the first half of next year. And that's a, that's a massive piece. Like, he plays power play, he plays penalty kill, he plays even strength and tough minutes at even strength. So that piece is gone, and he's going to be there later in the year, but you're not going to have him out of the gate. So if there's a time where you need a guy, it's going to be right away. And, and Edmonton, too, didn't have any really significant injuries last year. If they get hit with one or two in October, November, then I, I think Peter Shirelli will look back at this summer as a, a missed opportunity because he, he could have shored up the team's depth and, and brought in some contingency plans. And, and right now, their, their safety net is a bunch of maybes. Well, the, and the big elephant in the room that we've sort of kind of we've thrown his name but we haven't actually dove into it and i think this is a good time to do so is is the leon dry dilemma for them which is man there's, there's so many angles to hit this from so uh 
What do you, Peter Shirelli publicly coming out and saying that uh, he'd match any type of predatory deal? Like I, I sort of get the perspective of, you know, you're making the player, you're showing the player how much he means to you, and you're sort of just saving face with your fan base in front of the media, and and I, I get all of that, but like from a competitive advantage perspective, um, it really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense unless you really are just incredibly confident with you know the NHL sort of deep-rooted problem with RFAs and offer sheets and and the collusion involved between the GMs where there's basically this sort of you know handshake agreement that we won't mess with your guys if you don't mess with ours and I guess that's just what he, what his line of thinking was when he came out and, and, and made those comments about matching dry side, any potential dry saddle offer sheets well, there's a there's almost a script for these things, isn't there? Like, okay, um, pick pick your young RFA player whose con- entry level contract has just expired. He's a significant part of the team. His GM always gets the question, "Well, what about an offer sheet?" And the GM always says, "Don't even try it. We'll match any offer sheet." And then the offer sheet never comes. Like, <laughs> you can you can write the script every year. It it, it never seems to vary. I don't think that the will match any offer sheet, so don't even try it is is a particularly intelligent stance. I also don't think you ever really pay for it because, I mean, realistically, the, these things just do not happen very often. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we saw it uh, last summer. Like, if if teams were willing to uh, to get creative there and potentially overstep their boundaries, like with with guys like Kucherov and and Hampus Lindholm, I mean, their teams weren't in the in the greatest cap cap positions to all of a sudden be matching any type of big money offers you for them. And, you know, this summer there's the dry saddle with Edmonton and obviously in Washington, you got like Kuznetsov and Dmitry Orlov and and they'd be pretty hard pressed to, uh, to match, match those types of offers. But it's, it's, it's frustrating as from a fan's perspective, right? Because I feel like the league would be so much more fun in terms of activity and drama. If this stuff was a realistic option. And I feel like we'd see, uh, it, it, it would just be fun to, to talk about and dissect and, and there'd definitely be more movement. And instead it just, the, if you're an RFA, you're, you're basically screwed because you have very, very little leverage and the team that drafted you is pretty much in the driver's seat for, for many, many years. Yeah. It's, um, it, it requires some, some creativity on the part of the restricted free agent, for sure. And I, I think the cases where we've seen, think, well, like Ryan O'Reilly is, is the one case I can think of where we've seen something happen. And he actually, you know, went to Russia to get, to get things moving. So if you're, if you're a restricted free agent and you're willing to do that, then I think you can do some stuff. But, you know, if, if you're going to play in the NHL, you're, you're, you're in a bat, you're, you're stuck. Like, in, unless you're willing to play hardball, you're stuck. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Dre, Dre Seidel, I'm, I'm, I want to nail down um, a realistic expectation for him because it's it's so tough to evaluate him as a player right now because even though, you know, we've seen enough of a sample size now to, to know that he's incredibly productive and especially in the postseason, he started off slow against the Sharks and there was, uh, there was rumblings and maybe he was under the weather and dealing with a flu and he was critical of his own performance and then he really broke out and looked like a, a dominant center. And I thought he showed a lot as the, as the series against the ducks went along where they separated him from, from McDavid and, and put him on his own on, on his own down the middle on the second line. And he looked perfectly fine doing so. And that's kind of something that I wanted to see from them all year. And I still wonder if that is ultimately his, uh, 
his final destination. Like, well, like where, where let's rehash this conversation about where you're at in terms of, do you think that moving forward for the Oilers, it makes the most sense to, if you do give him a big contract here this summer to put him down the middle and that all of a sudden potentially makes Ryan Nugent Hopkins and the $6 million of slightly more expendable uh, if you do need to free up some money? Or do you think that you just sort of keep him attached to McDavid's wing and just have like one of the best lines in hockey going with those two? Well, I uh, Todd McClellan has a track record with this, and he likes to load up his top lines. He's mm-hmm. not one of these coaches that, that really likes the diversified approach to um, the, the, the forward attack, or at least he hasn't really in the past. He uses it sometimes, but he mostly stays away from it. I, I think... I think you saw in the playoffs the value of having these guys on separate lines. To me, I, this is—I I don't want to say it's a no-brainer because it sounds like I'm, I'm talking down about a coach. But I look at what what Joel Quenville's done in Chicago. I look at what Mike Sullivan and his predecessors have done in Pittsburgh. And to me, it's just—it's—it just seems obvious that these guys are so much more. If you have two elite talents, and and I. I'm not sure that Dreisaitl is an elite talent. He's very good, obviously, but but that that with that caveat aside, if you do have two of these guys and you can put them on two different lines and they can each of them act as a tent pole on, on those lines, it makes matchups incredibly difficult. It makes getting defense pairings out against them incredibly difficult. I think it's a big part of the reason that you know Pittsburgh has the last two cups and Chicago has three three Stanley Cups in six years. It's 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 something that Edmonton avoided doing all year. And now as a result, they're going into the summer negotiating with a player who not only is quite productive on his own, but spent pretty much all of the year having his totals inflated playing on Connor McDavid's right wing. It didn't make sense to me from a tactical standpoint. It really never made sense to me from a salary standpoint. And I think the question now, you know, notwithstanding his games against the Ducks, which was a very short period of time is we don't actually know how good Leon Dreisaitl is going to be if he's anchoring his own line. Like, there seems to be this unspoken assumption that, or, well, sometimes even a spoken assumption that he's going to be Evgeny Malkin, and that's a really high bar, and I'm not at all sure that he gets there. Yes. Um, he's, he's a good player for sure, but is he a great player? We, we don't know. Yes, and that's that's the frustrating part here because I feel like, you know, if they'd spent most of the year um, playing Dreisaitl, on his own line and he was still this productive. Like I don't feel like his uh his financial value or his asking price would have risen that much. Whereas now all of a sudden, like if, if we knew that he could, you know, single handedly drive his own line like that and all of a sudden you do have a Crosby Malkin situation, yeah, of course. Give him that nine, nine and a half million or whatever per season that he could potentially be asking for it. it's a, kind of a no-brainer because all of a sudden you have two dominant elite lines and you just fill in the rest around them. But you can't. It's it, that's a tough pill to swallow to give that much money to a guy who potentially might just be Connor McDavid's winger. When we've seen what you know, guys like Maroon or or you know, we'll, we'll probably see like a Kajula, and, and you can just kind of insert whoever for for very cheap, and all of a sudden they'll probably be much more productive just because of how good McDavid is. So, just in terms of. Uh, optimizing your assets and trying to squeeze every buck out of it it just that's that's the frustrating part from their perspective well and and we touched on this with mcdavid but going forward edmonton will have to make some tough choices with the salary cap and if you have dry stapled to mcdavid and making even if he's only making you know seven million dollars a year on his next contract which i would argue looking at his numbers is is probably a more reasonable 
outcome than something in the nine million dollar range. What whatever the players ask is, I, I think seven million dollars. You know, like like Gaudreau, like uh, Anze Kopitar is, is probably more realistic. Um, but if you're spending seven million on him and and uh, twelve thirteen million on McDavid, and you've got those guys on one line, that really doesn't leave you much money for the rest of your forward units. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it seems silly to even uh, sort of like armchair GM or fantasy book uh, teams Dre Seidel would be interesting on as an obvious candidate because it just seems so unlikely. But, I mean, just from a value perspective, um, like if you were a team that had cap space and thought you'd be pretty good so you're not worried about those picks all of a sudden, uh, you know, being being at the top of the draft – like that 9.8 per year where you're only giving up the, I think like the two first, the second and a third, like that doesn't seem like that steep of a price for a player that could potentially be a dominant number one center for you. If that's really what you believed he was right. Like it seems like there's so many teams out there that an offer sheet would make sense for, but I guess we just have to assume that they're not going to do it because they don't want to break that code. Well, it, the problem is, Unless you're giving up the four first round picks, I don't think they're I, like I think Edmonton matches without hesitation, right? So you think Edmonton could palate uh, it'd be palatable for them to spend like what twenty three million dollars on McDavid and Drysaddle combined at this point? Yeah, Chicago spends twenty one million bucks on Taves and Kane. I like I I, I don't think it's ideal, but I, I just I don't think there's any question that that's what they would do. Yeah. Uh, um. But so if you're another team, why, I guess I, I know, I know the answer to this, but like I would, if I was another Western conference team, or let's say the sharks, uh, as a Pacific division rival, I would be worried about letting the Oilers off the hook here and, and having yep. them save money on dry And if you really do believe that I would instantly sign Leon too, because it's clear that, you know, based on comments we heard from him, that he values himself and, and he has every right to as as a player trying to make his money that he believes he should get that uh, higher, higher salary range. Like if the Sharks sign him to that 9.8, that just seems like a very savvy thing from a competitive advantage perspective from them to all of a sudden, all right, if the Oilers really want to keep both of them, um, they're going to have to pay for it. And then they're going to have to make some tough decisions elsewhere. And maybe all of a sudden they will have to trade Ryan Nugent Hopkins for cheap future assets or something. And that'll make their team worse in the long run. So I, it's, it's a it's it's a tough spot, but boy, I I would love to see something happen there. Yeah, it's it's funny. We um, I I don't understand why we don't see more of this. Mm. I I think you can make an offer sheet with the with the twin objective that if you get the guy, you're better off, and if you don't get the guy, you're sticking a spoke in the wheel of a divisional rival. Um, and it's it's an, and the thing is, it's not even inflationary. Like it's inflationary for players coming into their second contract but with linkage you're paying the same amount of total money regardless right. um it just it's it just alters the financial distribution from older players to younger players a little bit so i i don't really see the downside and particularly if you're you know like hypothetically we're talking san jose san jose is not a team that has a bunch of big name restricted free agents coming up so they don't even have you know this worry about retaliation right. but for whatever reason we we don't see it it's fun to play around with but it's it's pretty academic because it it just never happens. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's disappointing, man. I'd, I'd love to see something happen there. Um, okay, let's talk about guys who will actually sign uh, deals with different teams then, um, and and start our 
July 1st free agent bonanza, kind of much like we did last year. And I think that the neatest way to accomplish that, because there's so much happening and there's so many names uh, to discuss, is to uh, sort of we'll go position by position and we'll maybe categorize them based on whether we think, you know, some intriguing flyers are shopping for the bargain bin, uh, some red flag players for teams to stay away from that I think are going to be too pricey. And then some good buys where, you know, there's a sensible match of team and player that, that just makes sense for both parties. And I guess before we start with the names, like we should, we should point out that it's generally, I think we both are in agreement that it's not, uh, Blowing a bunch of money on the big names in the first day of free agency is generally not the most uh, prudent way of doing business. It seems like teams typically wind up regretting those decisions. Well, we can avoid that this year. There aren't any big names. Yes. Well, well, I mean, uh, (laughs) Carl Alsner and his agent, I'm sure, would beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, The the problem with free agency, like, and it's funny because you know we were just talking about McDavid and this idea that um, it's very difficult to get elite talent and you can pay a lot for elite talent. The problem with unrestricted free agency is all these guys are old, basically. Like you'll get a few that are under twenty twenty seven because of unique circumstances, and twenty seven is a massive improvement on the old age of thirty one. But even so, by the time you get at these guys, most of them are past their prime, and you're paying for their declining years and. when you have to offer a seven, a six or seven year deal at at massive money and with a no move clause and uh, a whole bunch of signing bonuses, so that if he does um, fall down the road, you're still stuck with him. Yeah, it, it's it's just the kind of thing that can handcuff your team really fast. Well, and then that's a, a good point about um, like it's it's really tough to uh, make your team dramatically better in today's NHL because we see that. Like generally going through uh, unrestricted free agency is not the best way to do so because you're probably going to wind up paying uh, above what the player is actually worth to try and get them to your lineup. And then, you know, if if offer sheets are off the table so you can't negotiate with other teams' RFAs um, and trades, uh, we, we've seen some blockbuster ones in the past year or so, but generally speaking, the NHL doesn't have too many, you know, one-for-one straight-up uh, impactful hockey trades. All of a sudden, you're left with the draft, and that's all well and good. But at, at the age of drafting those players, and you know, with all the uncertainty, that's good, that could take like three, four, or five years to actually materialize, unless it's a first overall pick. And then all of a sudden, you get to the crux of, of the problem for a lot of these teams, where it's just really tough to make uh, dramatic changes to your roster if, if you're kind of fighting an uphill battle. So it's it can be very frustrating as both a fan and and the person running the team, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely, and um, it, it's. The, the NHL is a very conventional league. Like we haven't seen a lot of really innovative things. When you go into free agency, basically you're just hoping not to overpay too much for a piece that your team really needs, or you're shopping around for some of these cheap veterans that are available every year for for pennies on the dollar. And and that's the that's the one place you can make really good buys. But it, it, it's a very inefficient market, and um, and and teams don't seem to be interested in in shaking up the status quo. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And so if you look at this class, um, this free agent class, there's, it's a lot of veterans and, you know, just on how things work, I'm sure that uh, some of these guys will, you know, teams will wind up talking themselves into them and maybe even giving them an extra year or two on deals than they realistically should just because it's pretty thin and teams get desperate and they have this cash burning a hole in their pocket and they just look around and pick someone and give it to them. But like uh, let's start with the forwards and 
you know, beyond um, a Joe Thornton or an Alex Radulov. And even both those guys, uh, based on their age, obviously, Radulov's only 30 compared to Thornton's 37. But at the same time, you know, you hear about what he's looking for and it might be something like a six-year deal. And all of a sudden it becomes uh, much less intriguing for a lot of teams. So there's very few guys in this... uh, in this free agent class, especially at forward where you can, you know, point to them and be and say, well, they're going to be expensive, but I feel confident that it's going to be a good buy for us for a number of years. Like even Radulov was amazing last season, um, but I'm not very confident what he's going to look like even two or three years from now. So it, it, it's, it's, it really throws a monkey wrench into things. Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I sat down to, um, to, Dimitri assigns homework for these things, do, so he's he's, he's really cruel. Uh, only only to my I, most diligent, uh, <laughs> only to my most diligent guests, and you're on top of that list. So it's only to but, you, really. When I sat down to do this, I just looked at the forwards and I went, I don't see a single guy that I'd really want to bet heavy money on over time. Mm. Um, I think Joe Thornton makes a lot of sense if you're contending next year because he's he's still such a such a special player but that's a that's just a short term we're going for the cup this year let's sign this guy sort of move um radulov i'm i'm scared of because of the term uh marty hansel i like a lot but again you know like the the price there you, you have to wonder about and, th- and then you end up with guys like justin williams who are who are very good but we're we're, we're deep into supporting cast type guys now you're, you're not going to win a stanley cup with you know, Justin Williams is your number one right wing these days, probably just, just given his age and, and everything. I mean, maybe, maybe if your other forwards are good enough and whatever, but you're not talking about a guy who's really driving the results for you. You're talking about good players, but not not franchise-changing people. Yeah. Well, so what do you make of, of, of Joe Thornton? Because two years ago, uh, he was remarkable. I believe he was around a point a game, and I think that, there was a legitimate case to make for him as, as, uh, as being deserving of the Selkie Trophy just based on how dominant the Sharks were. Whenever he was on ice, it seemed like they pretty much always had the puck and just weren't giving up any goals. And then last year, he definitely, you know, he struggled with a bit of injury with some injuries towards the end of the season, in particular. And even as the year was going along, um, you know, he's never been uh, a, a volume shooter by any means, especially with the past handful of years, but he was getting to like below a shot per game territory, which was an alarmingly low rate, even for his standards. And obviously at age 37, with all the miles he's had, it's conceivable that he's, you know, he could just fall off and it'll be that dramatic and that sudden. But at the same time, you look at his skill set and sort of the puck possession brand of game he plays, which is so reliant on him just sort of using his frame and size and, and, and vision to create. And it seems like even in maybe in a more sheltered role where he's not necessarily having to do as much, he could still be productive for another couple of years. Um, would you be willing to give him something like a three-year deal or do you think that's even too too rich for your blood? I don't like a three-year deal, um, but if I can win a Stanley Cup next year, you know, like, you you get your name on the Stanley Cup forever, right? So, if if he's if he's bad in year three, but you win a Stanley Cup in the next two years, maybe that's a trade off you're willing to make. Uh, when I look at Thornton, I see a guy like, and we talk about maybe moving him to a sheltered role. This is a guy who is a 54 percent goal differential player, a 54 percent shot metric player. 
in fairly tough minutes for San Jose last year. And I mean, I know he did it with Joe Pavelski, but even so, those are those are good results, whatever his personal offensive totals might be. And and I'd argue his personal offensive totals were hurt last year by what was going on with the San Jose power play. But that's that's a whole different uh, thing to get into. Mm. Um, the other thing I'd point out is. Joe Thornton has has never been a volume shooter, but he hasn't been a particularly fast player for years now. Right. But the thing is, his brain is not going to get any worse, and he's always going to be you know six foot four and two hundred and twenty pounds. So when you combine that size and that that mind, I, I'd be I'd be okay um, maybe rolling the dice on him if you can get a a three year deal at a good an, average annual value and you can win the Stanley Cup this year. Sure. So as a hockey fan, um, where what, what would be the sort of most fun location for him to go to um, aside from just staying in San Jose? Like I, I, I like him in San Jose. I like the Sharks. I, I think that they've done really well over the past in terms of um, not overreacting to, to playoff failures and, and keeping things going. And there's definitely an argument for them to sort of turn the chapter here and, and maybe uh, look ahead and, and start thinking about the future. But at the same time, they were still a really good team last year. And with how open the Pacific division is, it's very, you could make the strong argument that they should just kind of roll it back and see, see where they're at next season. Um, but in terms of like new locations for, for Thornton, what, what do you think is sort of the most fun, realistic one for him to land where it would help the team the most? And, it would just be just a, a, a good story to follow. Um, well, you kind of ruined things a little bit by by demanding that I keep it realistic. <laughs> uh, the 2007 so, Detroit Red Wings. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, you know, I, I kind of love this thing that Pittsburgh does where mm. they just keep accumulating all these top offensive players. Um, what do you think about the Rangers? Yeah, I was gonna say he obviously with the departure of Stepan and the and the cap space they have now, um, he would make a lot of sense there. They do have that burning hole down the middle. I wonder, does he fit in with the way they want to play? Like, I guess you could make the argument that he'd add a new dynamic for them and also be sort of a great uh, breakout option for them, where it's like. You know, we've talked about how their defense has really gotten in the way of that transition game they want to play because they don't have very many guys that can actually complete those tape-to-tape passes through the zone. But maybe you don't worry about that because all of a sudden Thornton is just sagging back and, and occupying some of that role himself. So I guess it could make sense from that regard. Yeah, the, I, I I don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm sold on it just because I'm not sure. Like if I'm New York, I don't know if I want to spend the money on defense or if I want to spend it on center. And, and maybe there's more of a case to spend it on defense because you've got, you know, Mika Zibanejad and, and, and a pretty decent uh, just um, by committee cast of, of top nine forwards. Uh, the other team that kind of occurred to me and, and probably makes a little less sense because Eric Stahl had such a great year, but Minnesota has been looking for that, that top flight center forever. Um, they're, they're, they're a weird team because they're old in some ways, but they're young in some other ways. I I don't know that I hate the idea of him going to to Minnesota either. What about the Predators? <laughs> That's fun. Yes, yes I, I I like that a lot actually. I'd like to. I just I I think we're both on the same page where it would just be very fun to. Uh, to well, see Nashville Jordan. has a bit of money to play with, and they do? Uh, and you know Mike Fisher's a free agent. That uh, yeah, it, it's kind of an interesting thought. And then you can run Ryan Johansson and. Uh, and uh, Joe Thornton one 
one two. That's That'd with that defense. That's yeah. That's pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would look into that. I think that'd be a fun option. Um. So yeah, beyond beyond that, and um. I don't know. Is is there anything interesting for us to say about Radulov? Like it's all the stuff that we've sort of just uh, like drawn out and and it, what everyone knows, where it's like he's gonna help your team a lot next season, but the price might be too rich for a lot of teams to to go with. I'm sure someone will give it to him, whether it's the Canadians or someone else. But I'm not sure that I would be the one willing to do so. Well, the I I think. Okay, so I, I hate to do this because it happens all the time with, with Russian players, but is Radulov, like if you're making a six or seven year bet on a player, I think you want to know that he's going to be a guy who isn't going to create problems for you. Um, and if you're making that kind of term, you offering that kind of term to an older player, you want to know that he has the personal commitment to... Um, to continue to excel you know like you can give it to a guy like Yarmir Yager because he's such a fitness nut and and uh you know a younger Yarmir Yager obviously right. not not Yarmir Yager today but but a guy like Radulov has got such a checkered reputation I, I'd probably put him in the in the steer clear category if he's looking for for major term it's just it's too much of a risk you've got to be really desperate for that to make sense for you yeah I agree with that um he's definitely you know, you can make an argument he's the most potentially impactful player on this list, though, in terms of yep. uh, what he Absolutely. could provide to you. I mean, he was remarkable last year for the Canadians, and he just showed, sort of showed all of that uh, tantalizing ability with, with the puck control and how it just looked like it was sort of like a often when defensemen were like just bouncing off him, it kind of looked like an older brother just kind of playing keep away with his young with his younger siblings, where they just really couldn't do anything to get away from him, and and he was sometimes going like one on three and succeeding and it was remarkable to watch um yeah there's there's a kind of a collection of older uh wingers that we can lump together here and maybe i don't know just pick your favorite from the group there's you know it's the marlowe patrick sharp uh yaramir jager justin williams chris kunitz uh I guess Thomas Vanek, like there's there's a big group of those guys, and and that's not even mentioning uh, you know the Shane Dones and and Jerome McGinley, who I think have much less to offer than those names I just mentioned. But which one uh, is sort of the name you're keeping a closer eye, closest eye on in terms of you know if he falls in the right place, he could really uh, help move the needle for for whatever team he goes to. Well, I, I like Justin Williams a lot. Um, I, I don't know two two guys you didn't mention that I kind of wonder about are. Alish Hemsky and, and Redeem Verbata. I don't know if you count Hemsky in that group. He's, he's a little bit younger than some of those guys. Mm-hmm. But but both of those players, to me, are guys who might fly under the radar a little bit. Like, Patrick, everybody's going to know about Patrick Marlowe. Everybody's, a lot of players, teams are going to chase Patrick Marlowe. Um, whereas, you know, Verbata was playing in, in Arizona, and Hemsky got hurt at the World Cup last year. And, and those guys might slide under the radar a little bit and, and provide you with with more bang for your buck, I, I think. And and this is maybe a little bit fanboy of me to say this, but Hemsky's the guy I'm really interested in. I've, I've always just loved him as a player. Mm. And to me, he's fascinating because he's a guy who um, can conceivably help you on the power play, can conceivably play on a scoring line, but can also move to a, you know, a power versus power or a checking line. And in the right situation, assuming health, I, I think he could be a, be a very interesting add. Yeah. 
I uh, I co-signed that. I I think you could probably add even like a a Yuri Hoodler to that list, but just the yes. past year and a half he's had are are pretty alarming considering he's also thirty three years well, old. But it's very conceivable <laughs> that on on the minimum he could provide value. Yeah, Hoodler's Hoodler's in my bargain bin yeah. category, so yeah. I didn't want to get to him. Um, Pat, Patrick Marlowe though is actually you asked me to to kind of put together some red flag players, and he's mm. definitely on that list. I I don't think I'd I'd even consider signing Patrick Marlowe. Yeah, well, not at the money he's going to get anyway. It seems like uh, best case scenario for him is is him and Thornton just both agreeing to come back to San Jose. I feel like, um, and and they've they sort of made it seem not necessarily they're a package deal, but for Thornton at least, it sounds like if Marlowe returns, that could be a big driving force for bringing him back as well. So I guess that'll be something to watch for. Yeah, but even I, I that feels like a coattail situation to me though, yeah. like. You look at the last three years, um, Marlowe's on ice, Fenwick is worse than his teams. You look at the last five years and four of them, every year but this year, his on ice goal totals are worse than the team average. And he has not been playing with bad players. Like he, He's been put in, in good situations. He hasn't, I, I think at this point, he's he's riding on reputation more than anything else. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely fair to say. Um so there's a the, like the next tier below these guys uh, is fascinating because I'm I'm sure that some of these guys will wind up providing value, um, but it's it's there's a lot of names to sort through and you know maybe maybe Sam Gagne for example um, should be put in that tier uh, above based on pay grade because it seems like I don't know like do you think he's gonna he's gonna really cash in for the for the you know, tremendously productive season he had on, on Columbus's top power play unit last year, because it seems like while he showed that he uh, can be a weapon if used properly, um, all of a sudden, like one of the reasons why he was so valuable is because he was basically making nothing. And if you all of a sudden start paying him a premium for that, then he becomes much less intriguing an option for me. Yeah. I, I feel, I feel similarly about Gagne. Um, I just don't think, I think he's a specialist and that guy can have a lot of value to you. You know, like if he's the, the, the right shot, uh, um, trigger man on your power play, that that's something that has a lot of value if, if it makes your power play go, but you can't overpay him because he's not a guy who can do everything for you. He's not a guy who can play multiple roles. You've got to be a team that can cast him in, in the exact right position. And, and if you are, then he can work out for you, but you don't want to pay too much money for him. Um, I, how, how proud, how proud of you, of me, of myself, I should say, are you that, um, I resisted the urge of bringing up PA Parento on that list of, uh, intriguing wingers. <laughs> I, it, it took, it took, it took everything I had, every, uh, every fiber. But, uh, if anyone wants my take on PA Parento as a contributor, maybe just go back and listen to any of the previous, like 47 shows I've done on this podcast. <laughs> You know, for a guy who uh, had 13 goals last year, who has outperformed his team's shot metrics four of the last four years, who's outperformed his team's goal metrics three of the last four years, P.A. Parento is probably a guy you can get for under a million bucks. And he's going to be useful, yes. Um, yeah, sort of the, the, I feel like the trendiest player on this next list is Jordan Wheel, it seems like. A, mm-hmm. And and I don't blame him at all, but it seems like every day I, I open Twitter, I see he's visiting with some new team that's trying to court him this summer. And uh, I'm all for it, especially if they're going to be able to get him for a, for a nice little, uh, you know, 
cheap price and all of a sudden he could play play his way up your lineup but we still haven't you know he's he's succeeded at the AHL level of course and he looked good in that short cameo towards the end of the season last year with the Flyers but it seems like the Jordan Wheel hype train is could potentially really just get out of control here if if some team just feels the need to overpay him just to make sure they they land him well the thing about Wheel is he's a he's a right shot he's young by free agent standards and that he's only he's just turned 25 um and and the thing that's really working for him is that uh, john marchesso signed with florida last year Mm. with respect to wheel marchesso had a long track record at the nhl level he just hadn't got the minutes like he he'd really performed well in the situations he'd been placed in but he had never been given the opportunity to advance and and when florida gave him that opportunity he had just a tremendous year I, I think Wheel's an, an interesting player. I like him a lot, but uh, you know he was sheltered in Philly. He had a had a crazy shooting percentage. Um, he's he's still all he's still a a tiny player who you know maybe can make it, maybe won't make it. I like him. I, I certainly wouldn't be willing to to break the bank to sign him, but it, you know assuming the contract is sensible, I think he's a very reasonable gamble for for any number of teams. Yeah, and he is. Um... You know, we should say he is turning 26 towards the end of the season, so it's not like he's uh, this super young guy either. Where, you know, obviously, uh, considering some of the names we've spoken about before, he's definitely a younger option, but he's been around for a while. It just hasn't really been at the NHL level yet, so I would temper my expectations on him. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think, you know, if I'm Jordan Wheel, and and this is kind of an interesting case study because you probably have two different two different options. And, and option one would be, you know, cash in now, get as much money as you can, try and get a, you know, a, I don't know, a two-year deal at 1.1 million or something like that, or do what a few other players have done and sign a short-term, dirt-cheap deal, excuse me, with a really good team. Right. Like, go to Chicago and say, hey, <laughs> what, what can you guys do for me? Like, will you put me in situation? And, and if you can find a place where you're going to be in a good situation, mm. you know, maybe you can parlay that into more money down the road and it's it's better off for you i i think if if i were him that would be very interesting to me it would be a, a chance to play with some very established high-end players um on a on a dirt cheap cap hit yeah i um yeah just betting on yourself i mean another guy yeah. that could that could fit that mold would be like a brandon perry for example right like we saw we've seen throughout his career that he can definitely be a, a power play weapon and and is a good finisher with his shot so for a team like the Blackhawks, uh, who are obviously familiar with him since he came up with them, like maybe you bring him in dirt cheap and stick him on your power play, and maybe he plays fourth line minutes for you, and, and can definitely provide value based on how little you're paying him. So he'd be another guy that I'd be I'd looking at if you're if if that's the role you're trying to fit. Yeah, I, I think the difference between um, Wheel and Peary is there's there's a chance that Peary can be an even strength guy for you, like. Right. Um, 11 of Wheel's 12 points last year came at evens. Um, Peary scored half of his his offense on the power play. So one of those guys is definitely just a total specialist, and, and the other guy you know, might be more than that for you. Yeah, no, I agree. I just think that we could see some team replicate the type of success uh, the Blue Jackets had with Sam Gagne, for example, last yeah. year with, with Peary. So he'd be interesting. Yeah, that's uh, the, the one thing working against Peary, though, is, is he's a left shot, and uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a power play guy, that's a lot easier to find. Yep. So I'm I'm very curious to see what someone like a like a Bo Bennett goes for this summer and I was kind of curious to I, I was 
surprised a little bit to see that the Devils were willing to uh, to let him go like that. I mean, I mean, it's quite possible that they still wind up retaining him as a as a UFA, but um, you know, he's still only twenty five. I guess he's turning twenty six. The year goes along, and he definitely has that uh, worrisome injury track record. And he's not uh, a boxcar stats guy by any means, but he showed himself to be a pretty useful sort of maybe third line type who can uh, help drive the shot differentials a bit and, and definitely play. And it would seem like an intriguing uh, flyer for some teams to take on. And I'm not sure how he's valued around the league, but it's probably not, not very highly I'd imagine. Yeah. I, I, I don't mind him. He's uh, as a, as just a, you know, we're going to, we're going to, take a flyer on this guy and, and not pay him very much. I, I think he's very interesting. Um, the, the one thing I think that works against him is like you mentioned, he's not a box car guy, but he's also not a particularly high end uh, points per minute guy either. Mm-hmm. Like at, at any point in it, he's never done it at any point over his career. And I, I think maybe the, if you're, if you're signing him, the, the upside there is maybe he turns into a, a, a useful third line guy who can, who can spot above that. And um, I, I just, like he, I think he's a reasonable gamble on a cheap contract, particularly because he's got a lot of things going for him. You know, right shot, decent size, but I, I, I don't think he's anything special. I mean, Jonathan, we're shopping in the bargain bin here. You can't, you can't <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. Well, this is this is true. This is true. <laughs> um, okay, pick one of these two guys. If you were taking a, a flyer, would you and a, a, a generic team? So you don't have any and any needs necessarily. You just have one roster spot to fill. Would you rather take a flyer on Nail Yakupov or Mikhail Grigorenko? I knew those were going to be those two guys are going to be. And by the together. way, how wild is it that those two guys uh, are just available for for peanuts to anyone in the league right now? Like it, it just really uh, hammers home the point of how how we should temper our expectations with prospects and how unpredictable the draft can be. Because uh, if you told people what like four years ago that this would be the case, it would seem uh, very unlikely just based on how highly they were hyped. Well, but it, too, it's it's one of those situations where the 2012 draft class was known to be a little bit weaker. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the really funny thing about that is how crazy does Philip Forsberg sliding look in retrospect? Like just just bat crap crazy, right? Yeah. Um, I I think if I had to pick between one of those two, and and I'd have an interest in taking a flyer on either of them in the right situation. I, I think in Yak's case, you need shelter and a and a right shot center to play with him. Um, the guy I'd take the flyer on is Grigorenko. Uh, he is going to be big no matter what. He had actually fairly decent totals last year for Colorado. Like he had ten goals. Um, he can he can do other things for you too. Like he's, as much as he gets slagged as a sort of a soft perimeter player, he is a guy who can play on the penalty kill. He or who has played on the penalty kill, um, who can win faceoffs, who can who can do other things. And you know if he ends up being your fourth line center. That's not necessarily a, a total disaster for you. Whereas with Yakupov, I think, you know, Yakupov either makes it or he doesn't. Um, with Grigorenko, there's there's more of a tier of, of potential options. I'm going to bite my tongue here and refrain from making a joke about how Mikhail Grigorenko might actually be 35 years old at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what what kills me about this stuff though is is it's it's kind of taken as gospel in some circles. Like I've had some very smart people tell me, oh yeah, yeah, Grigorenko is definitely. 25, 26, 27, and it's like, well, maybe, but yeah. those those rumors were never, uh, you know, like it's 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 kind of fun to joke about 
Well, you, you made the joke about him and Shane Doan the other day. Yes, him, Shane Doan, and Jerome McGinley, the 40-year-olds on the trade market, on the, on the free agent market. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. But but it is one of those situations where we are we are dealing in rumor and conjecture. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, were there any other forwards you wanted to talk about? I, I, the, talking about this class is really bumming me out. I feel like uh, there's some interesting names, but it's definitely very underwhelming. I had three other guys on my list. Um, one is a red flag guy, and two is kind of interesting bargain bin guys. Okay. Uh, the red flag guy is Tyler Pitlick. Um, he's young, he's big, he does a lot of different things. So I think some people might be interested in him as a, you know, as kind of one of these cheap bets. Um, his AHL numbers have been terrible forever. He can never stay healthy, uh, and and this is like six years of not being able to stay healthy. Yeah. I, I'd steer clear of him. Um, Teddy Purcell can't skate really by compared to a lot of NHL players, but he. he very productive in the American League last year, um, and he was kind of a victim of circumstance in L.A., I thought, where they got off to a bad start, and he just got flushed and, and didn't get another look. So I'd be interested in him on, on maybe a training camp tryout type thing. But the, the one guy who actually kind of interests me as a, a guy who you can plug and play is maybe Brian Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a lot of teams go to these specialty fourth lines that play a ton of defensive zone minutes. Montreal is one of those teams that's done that. Um, Flynn's a, a right shot. He can play center. He can play wing. He can play the penalty kill. He's he's 28 years old. He's not going to be expensive. To me, if you're looking for just a, a depth guy and you're you're not hoping for you know a massive return, you're not you're not he's not really a gamble. But I think he's a safe bet to to cheaply fill an an important specialty role with your team. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll be interested to see where he lands. Okay, defenseman. Um, I actually think this is uh, a more, I guess it's not a more interesting group. There's there's some names uh, for us to talk about here, and a lot of them are uh, <laughs> a lot of them are of the red flag variety. Um, so the pretty obvious cream of the crop, right? Like whereas with the forwards, there wasn't like a TJ Oshie, for example. If he hadn't um, re-signed with the Capitals, probably would have been uh, the biggest name on the, on the list here on defenseman, there's the, you know, there's Kevin Shankirk and then there's everyone else. And he's been linked. I, to I the... think Carl Alsner's agent might object oh, to that, uh, assertion. Dimitri. Oh, we will, we will get to Carl Alsner. You just wait. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with Kevin Shankirk, like, you know, there's been all the, uh, connections drawn between him and the Rangers and it definitely seemed like a logical fit. But now I wonder with the fact that they, Resign Brendan Smith for for a reasonably pricey deal um, in the four four million dollar range, and the fact that you know they do have that hole down the middle, and uh, Joe Thornton might be intri- immensely appealing for them. Um, maybe they go that direction. So I don't know. Like, would you do you think Kevin Shattenkirk on the Rangers still makes the most sense, or would you like if he went to the Lightning, for example? I know that he sort of balked at the idea before, or at least signing with them long term. Um, if he's changed his mind at all on that, like that would be a very interesting fit. Yeah, I'd love him in Tampa Bay. Um, I, I think the thing with New York is, and and I do, where where Brendan Smith, I don't think even enters into it is who plays on the right side in New York. Mm-hmm. Like Dan Girardi's been playing with Ryan McDonough forever, despite being you know a very bad fit for that role. And I, I think in large part it's because New York doesn't really have a lot of good right shooting options. Um, you know, Kevin Klein might retire. Uh, there, there, there isn't much there. Right. So I, I think Shattenkirk still makes a lot of sense for the Rangers. Yeah, he would definitely fill uh, a lot of their needs, and he would help. Uh, he'd be a, a big part of that high octane offense for them, and I'd like to see that. I mean, both with him and and the Lightning. I wonder. 
I mean, it makes sense for. It's always you know tough to tell uh, a player what to do with their money, and when you were looking at a big long term payday that's going to provide financial security for you for. Uh, years to come and pretty much your entire life um it's tough to pass that up because obviously injuries and can happen at any point and and the circumstances can change but at the same time man if he was willing to take a one-year deal with Edmonton Oilers at a very uh high rate for that one season that would be a a fascinating fit as well oh yeah yeah he (laughs) well what I, I really wanted the Oilers to do at the deadline if if I'd been in their shoes was uh was to consider making him as a targeting him as a uh, a rental piece just to to see what the team could do with that kind of puck moving ability on the back end, which is something they don't really have. Certainly not at a Shattenkirk level. I, I don't know that Edmonton like if, if I'm I don't think it makes a lot of sense if I'm Shattenkirk and I'm looking at a one year deal with some club. I I don't think I look at Edmonton though. Mm. Who would you look at? Do you have a do you have a, do you have a, do you have a team in mind? <sighs> Uh, I well, not really, because I I'd been thinking of him as uh, as signing a a long term deal, right? So Which I, I what he'll probably do. That. I mean, he's looking at a very yeah a very big money big term deal that's going to set him up for the rest of his life. So it's, yeah, uh, and I uh, that makes that seems like the logical fit for him. Um, okay, so the stayaways, man. This is a this is a long list of guys. Uh, is, is this where we get to Carl Olsner? Yes, and I, I'm not. I'm not even gonna, you know, talk about the uh, the obvious names. I think that like a Carl Alsner, for example, seems like it could be obvious, but at the same time, um, I I feel like he's gonna get um, a deal that we're all gonna shake our heads at, right? Like it seems like someone is gonna talk themselves into giving him both term and money. It might not necessarily be uh, enormous money, but it's gonna be like a really good second pairing guy. And I think that's going to be a big mistake based on the trajectory of his career and what he's shown, what he showed as recently as last season. Well, I think Alsner is a great example of, um, and, and not because he's a bad player because he's not a bad player. I, I think he's a great example of the kind of contracts that teams to, um, get, get themselves in trouble within free agency. So he is a, basically a pure defensive defenseman. Um, he, which, which is always a bit of a red flag because those guys traditionally have not aged well. The NHL seems to be moving away from those guys. He's he's passable in a tough minutes role, which makes him very appealing because you can go well. You know, we could he, we've got this right shot puck mover, and if we added Olsner, they could be our matchup pairing. And and you might be right for a year or two, but he's going to be 29 early next year. Um, if you sign him to a five or six year deal, you're you're paying him into his 30s. Uh, for a player type that is becoming less and less effective in the NHL, he's he's not a guy with great underlying numbers. I think you can you can make some um, some allowances for him based on situation, but but the thing is the the key thing is that there just aren't a lot of other options on the blue line. So if you need a shutdown defenseman really bad, you can go and sign Carl Alzer to a big ticket deal for a lot of years, even though he's a he's a supporting guy. And, and and to me, that's that's where teams really get in trouble is where they identify, you know, a comp, a good, competent, supporting role player, and they pay him like he's a difference maker. And and Alsner to me is just the, the best possible candidate for that treatment in this draft class or in this free agent class. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, Dan Girardi, um, wow. Uh, he's, been, he's only he's only going to get a one year deal, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. 
Um, one year too long, in my opinion. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> well, I, I think the thing is where you might get in trouble is if somebody does what uh, what Philly did with with Vincent LeCavalier, and they go, "Well, you know, we can sign this guy for two or three years at a cut rate right now." That's that's where you might really get in trouble with Girardi. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think the two more sort of practical uh, stayaways from our perspective are. Michael Stone and Dmitry Kulikov because they're at the age where it's not as obvious that there's stayaways, right? Like you could, it seems like people are high on Michael Stone. I mean, just based on the fact that the Flames, like he was their big trade deadline acquisition and they felt comfortable with him filling their defensive need and it clearly showed that was not the case. And I feel like someone is going to talk themselves into giving him like a three-year deal or something for at a moderate rate and I think that'll be a mistake because I really, he hasn't really shown us anything uh, away from Ekman Larson to make us believe that he's going to be even like a, that he's going to be a defenseman that, that can sort of keep his head above water unless he's really being used in the most optimal way possible. Um, like, where, where are you at with Michael Stone? Yeah, uh, I think Michael Stone's lower case Carl Alsner in terms of situations. Mm. Um, you made the great point that he hasn't done a lot away from Ekman Larson. He's played with really good players in Arizona, and he hasn't been that good. But what really works, what really makes him dangerous is if you need a right shot defenseman, um, obviously only a few teams are going to really be in on Kevin Shattenkirk. A lot of teams are going to think Cody Franzen isn't worth looking at. And once you cross those two guys off the list... Michael Stone's kind of all that's left. And you go, well, you know, maybe he's not that great, but he's competent and we're going to pay a little bit of a premium because he's a right shot D and he's a free agent, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, uh, like, I think Michael Stone's probably a third pair defenseman. Yeah. And he's, I think he's going to be uh, viewed and paid as more than that. And I think that's yeah. where the mistake lies. Um, what about, what about Kulikov? Because the reason why I think, uh, a team could really talk themselves into him is because, you know, it sounds like his back was really uh, a, a detriment or an issue for him last season. And if you think that he's healthy, like it seems like his stock was much higher before this disastrous season in Buffalo. So if you think he's going to, your if your perception of him is going to revert back to that form, then it seems like he'd be someone just based on how few sort of options in his, uh, his age range that are available seems like someone could talk themselves into him, but I'm pretty skeptical on him being anything more than like a sort of what you just described Michael Stone as basically. Um, I, I think the thing that might be a saving grace with Kulikov is I don't think teams, I, I don't think there are a lot of teams that are going to be able to talk themselves into paying big money over multiple years for a guy coming off that kind of injury. Like back problems are famously, uh, famously chronic recurring i like i don't i'm speaking in general right. generalities here not with regard to kulikov specifically but i think that might scare some teams away and to me if you give him a one or two year show me deal i i don't mind him um in addition to the injuries last year he like he played with uh Ristolainen and bogosian in buffalo and and those are both bad fits for for different reasons i i don't know that I don't know that he necessarily will be just a third pair defenseman. He he might end up being a being a number four guy if you if you put him in the right situation. Right. And 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 that's and this is the thing is these are all relative to expectations. If, if you're paying Kulikov over term, yeah, stay away from him. But I I just with that injury history, I don't think teams are going to be able to convince themselves to do that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. The so I've got a list here of sort of. Uh, 
good buys. And like, I think Brian Campbell is a great buy. The thing is, is I don't we, we haven't really heard much about like where what he's looking for and where he'd be willing to play because it was pretty clear that last year, for example, he took way below what he could have probably gotten elsewhere just to play in Chicago, right? So I'm not sure, um, given his age and how much money he's made throughout his career, like what what his ideal situation is. So that kind of makes it tough to like pick a team that would be a logical landing spot for him. Yeah, um, I, I think he makes a lot more sense for a team like Edmonton than, than Kevin Shattenkirk mm. would, just because he, he can do some of the things that uh, that Sakura does for them. I, I'm he didn't have a great year in Chicago. I'm I'm a little bit worried with Campbell that he's you know he's at that age where where you hit the cliff and you you fall off. But uh, he, he's old enough that he probably only gets a one year deal, and he might be he might be your, your number two defenseman on the left side in, in the right situation. I, uh, I I buy that. Um, so the other two guys I had on this list were, well, actually I had a couple more, but then I, I sort of broke it into, like, I, I, I had Cody Franzen on this list as well, because I think he'll be able to have him for very cheap, and I had J- J- John Michael Lyles as well, and then I split Trevor Daly and Michael Delzato into their own group, because I think that they're probably going to be in a different, in a different price bracket. Yeah, I, I, I uh, <laughs> I, I like Franzen. I, I think I feel like we're doing a, you know, we we'll get to Patrick Workotch, I'm sure, and uh, and then this will just be an, an analytics guy's bargain bin greatest yes. hit list. Yes. Uh, but but Franzen, you know, Franzen's problems are known. He's not physically aggressive. He's 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 a little bit of a a slow skater, but he's he's big. He's got um, a good stick. He's got an offensive dimension. He's had reasonable success in a tough minutes role. To me, I think Franzen just makes a, a world of sense as a fallback position for Toronto if they can't get somebody like, a, you know, a Chris Tanev, a real difference maker. A, as a stopgap player, I, I think he'd be a, a fantastic fit for the Leafs. Mm. Yeah, but what, what do you think about Michael Lozado? Because he, uh, he he's the toughest defenseman on this list, isn't he? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he it, it seemed like his career was really headed in the wrong direction for a while there and towards the end of the run in, in New York and then he was traded to, to Nashville and he didn't do anything there and then you know, he really revitalized his career in Philly, especially I thought that pairing with him and Radko Gudas was was very intriguing and a very solid sort of second pair type role. And I'm not sure. I mean, he's still in that age where I'm, I'm kind of curious to see wh- like what the market for him is going to be like and what whether he's sort of um, rehabilitated the perception of him around the league and whether someone's going to bite or whether he's going to have to keep proving it and if it if the case is the latter, then he seems like a very intriguing option because I definitely think he can play. Yeah, I think the thing working in his favor is just that they're it's it's such a terrible um, free agent class. Like if you if you view Alzner the, kind of the way we kind of do, and you're a little bit worried about Kulikov's injury history, your your left shot options are not great. Um, so I, that's that's what I think works in Delzato's favor. It wouldn't surprise me if he signed a similar deal to what he had in Philly, which which I think was two years and just under a four million dollar cap hit. Um, and and in that role, like if you're not betting a whole lot of term on him, I, I'm I'm good with that. I, I think he can he can play. I, I I don't know I don't know for sure what he is, but uh, I'd be comfortable betting on him as like a, a number four guy on the depth chart. Yeah, I like that. Um... Give me some, uh, give me some of the intriguing fi- flyers you had, and and let's not do Patrick Weirkoch. I feel like everyone already at this point sort of knows. I mean, he d- he did have a rough year in Colorado, but 
Uh, you could probably have him for for, for um, a, a bag of pucks and sticks, and he could very very well be a useful third pairing defenseman for you. Um, were there any other guys that you sort of circled as as intriguing names? No, <laughs> no, uh, that, that's not exactly true. But I, I really had to dig on this because I I don't think that this class has the the flop the, even the bargain bin type guys that previous ones have. Um, one guy I looked at. And uh, I'll probably get flack for this. Is, is Kyle Quincy? I I don't like uh, John Moore. I don't think he's a very good defenseman. Mm. And Quincy away from Moore was pretty decent last year. He, I know he doesn't have great numbers over his history, but he played a lot of time on the right side in Detroit, which, as we know, is a bad situation. To me, you pay him like a third pair guy, and you know he might be a really good number five if he's if he's playing on on the left side. Um, I know that's not a not a real sexy pick, but it's, there, there's not a lot out there. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty bleak. Um, there's well, a... and, and the the other guys are are like the other two guys I had were were Nesterov and uh, Johanna Vitu, and both of those guys are, you know, very they look like specialists. They they might do okay once the the training wheels come off, but they they've never been tried in a really tough role. Yeah, I would I would um, I like both those guys, and and I. Had... I didn't have Nestor on my list because it sounds like he's going to the KHL. Um, I would have Ovi2 on my list for sure. I think he's incredibly fun to watch, especially if you're willing to sort of get creative and experiment and maybe have sort of like a rover position where you maybe just dress seven defensemen and, and he sort of fits that role. Like, that'd be fascinating. I'm not sure what his future at the NHL level is like as an actual uh, traditional defenseman based on the current landscape, but... I think he's got a, an intriguing combination of talents, and I would much I would much rather take a shot on a guy like Ovi two, uh, just kind of exploding offensively versus a, a Kyle Quincy, who we kind of know what he's going to be for you. Yeah, yeah, abso- absolutely. But I, I don't. I, I think Ovi two's a. I, he's a, I he's don't a seven know. defenseman. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just it. And and I actually love the idea of an eleven forward, seven defenseman rotation for a lot of different reasons, but uh, not not many coaches are seem to be comfortable with it. Yeah, it's a tough sell. Um, okay, let's 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 wrap this up with goalies. Um, and so there's a, a few sort of like there isn't an obvious uh, number one starter amongst the group, but there are a bunch of intriguing sort of. Uh, platoon options if you're willing to go with a more modern like 1a 1b where it's a 50 30 or even 40 40 split and it seems like i think we're going to be in agreement that like if you had to pick one would you rather go with steve mason or brian elliott is peter morazic an option <laughs> well we're, we're talking about purely ufas here yeah no, i i know i just and and that but that was the problem when i looked at this class what i was yeah. i was going if I'm looking for a goalie this summer to oh, to I'll, maybe be my starter, I'm, I'm going the trade route. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a handful of guys that, that I'd much rather trade for, but purely from I, probably probably Elliot. To answer the question you actually asked, mm. probably Brian Elliot. Yeah, I like I like Elliot. I, I like both guys. I mean, with Steve Mason, yeah. like he he had a rough year last year. Um, I think he fell all the way down to a 908 save percentage. But you still got to keep in mind that I mean, he's remarkably not even 30 years old yet. Which yep. I mean, he's just been around forever, so it seems like he's old, but he's really not. And he had a 9.22 save percentage in 173 games for the Flyers before last season, uh, spanning like three, three, three plus seasons. So 
I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I know he's uh, he's a, a Nick Mercadante analytic special, uh, fa- you know, favorite uh, darling, and I'd be willing to uh, to bring him in and give him somewhere in that thirty to forty star range, and, and I think that he would be pretty useful in it. Um, but yeah, I, I put him and Brian Elliott sort of in that in that same group, and I didn't include Chad Johnson because it, uh, there's a report that he's pretty much. Uh, assured to go back to Buffalo as being Robin Leonard's backup. So I kind of crossed him off the list, but I guess you'd put him amongst those two as well. Yeah. I think there's a bit of separation between um, Johnson and the other two guys. That's just my personal view. I, I I like Johnson, but uh, to me, he's more pure backup at this stage where, and, and a backup who can play, which is the only kind of backup you should be interested in. But uh, both Elliot and Mason to me are guys that, I have a lot of time for, but not necessarily guys I'd want to anoint as starting goalies. Jonathan, can I interest you in uh, the literal definition of league average in, in Ryan Miller? <laughs> I, I yeah, no, I'm I'm probably uh, good there unless he's the, the problem with Miller is it, it's all going to depend on contract. His his reputation has out has exceeded his results for many years now. Yeah, I think the most interesting name. Um, just based on what he'll probably cost and what he could provide you is Jonas and Roth here. And I know that who greatest hits. <laughs> well, here's the thing. He had the six horrible games last year to start the season and yeah. he was just instantly demoted and never wound up making it back mostly because of uh pedigree and stature. I feel like if he was a former first round pick, who was this a, a, more uh, like a six, four, more traditional goalie, he probably would have been back. Um, but he, Show that he's clearly too good for the AHL level. I mean, he killed it in San Diego, both in the regular season and in the in the Calder Cup playoffs uh, with the Ducks affiliate. And I, you know, he was very good for the Kings the year before. Um, you know, we can get into whether that system lends itself to to goalies having good good numbers. But I mean, at the end of the day, like I definitely think that for the bare minimum, he could be a very serviceable backup who could eat some starts for you and not completely do you in. And we saw last season that. For a lot of teams, that would be a massive upgrade. So I, I kind of like Jonas Enroth for that. Yeah, I do too. I uh, he, he was really the only guy of the the the, the pure backups, and and maybe like he's the only really bargain bin guy on the the goalie market this this year. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's uh, assuming that you're viewing J- my boy JF Barube as a number one goalie, and not even including him on that list because uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming he's a real person, I think J.F. Arube is going to do very well next season. Um, probably in the AHL, but... Um, yeah, very good, very good American League goalie. Yes. Well, uh, you know, good American League yes. goalie. Yeah, let's not get crazy. Um, yeah, there's... there's, It's not great, but obviously, as we said, um, as per, at least with goalies, if you're really in the market for one, I think that the trade route is the, is the most logical option. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I feel like that's kind of the conclusion we've come to at all positions, which... Uh, well, I'm glad we I'm glad we did a like a 75 minute podcast on a free agency preview to come to the conclusion that you shouldn't sign any free agents. You should actually just work the trade market. Well, I was I was wondering why we spent 20 minutes on the Oilers and uh, but it, but it wasn't really a mystery as I as I glanced at my list of free agents. I went, well, yeah, I guess I guess we got to talk about something. Well, it's good that we did that at the start of the show, so we kind of roped the listeners in and they listened for a bit, and now they maybe they just kind of feel committed to see this thing through, and they've actually listened to it at the end. Because if we started well, with this stuff, uh, we probably would have gotten a lot of people tuning out. Well, they they probably assume that at some point we're going to talk about somebody who who actually matters, right? Like we we wouldn't talk this long about a bunch of second tier guys for 
for just no reason. Well, we can only work with what we're given. I mean, we're not the ones picking picking who's available. Well, you know what? Maybe maybe that's the the takeaway from this is that NHL teams are just getting so good at not uh, or at, at locking up guys who uh, who have value that there's just nothing making it to free agency. Yes, that's that's what's happening. That's definitely actually happening. in in all seriousness though. You know what I think it is? Is I think it's the Vegas effect where a lot of teams needed guys signed for two years for their right. for their um, exposed lists. Yeah, definitely. I think, well, I mean, next year's class looks uh, very intriguing, but obviously some of the bigger names will probably be off the off the board by the time we get to that point, but that's a uh, discussion for another day. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for taking the time. Uh, good luck with all the uh, the baby duties, and enjoy the uh, the free agency, free agency bonanza, and uh, we'll check in with you sometime down the road. Sounds good, Dimitri. As as always, it's a pleasure. All right, chat soon. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.